gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. As we think as a church, we want to be a people. We want to recognize that we are a body of many parts, gifts, abilities, ages, and we also have men and women. And how we steward how God has created us so that we might be one body, his people, not in competition, not dishonoring one another, but in loving and encouraging and building one another up and using our abilities and our gifts and our roles in a way that glorifies Christ. As we come to 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 11, this passage has been a source of so much controversy. That's why we spent the last three weeks getting to this point. We still have one more week to go. And I also want to let you know, Heritage, that after we finish this five weeks, the conversation is not done. We're going to walk into 1 Timothy 3 and continue to have this conversation about eldership and leadership, pastors, deacons. Where do men and women fall into these categories? But as we look at this passage, today I want to ask a series of very practical questions. But let's go ahead and read the text first and orient ourselves, verse 11, where it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's admit right up front that this is a challenging text. To my sisters out there, I acknowledge the challenge and the baggage that comes with this text and depending on your own experiences, maybe even hurt, frustration, or confusion. I believe that God's word has been given for our instruction, but also our delight and joy. Read Psalm 119. See the psalmist revel in the joy that the word of God brings. And I pray that sisters in your hearts and brothers in your hearts, that this passage ceases to be one of confusion and angst, but actually is transformed into a passage of delight and joy. But that may take time to understand and to realize what this passage is teaching. And brothers, I would ask that you pray for your sisters, that we might seek their blessing and that we might demonstrate true humility and gentleness in Christ-likeness. Now that we have spent three weeks in this text, again, I want to get very practical by asking a series of direct questions. There's not necessarily a big idea per se, but rather I want to wade into some of the practical things that people ask about this topic. I do pray that the directness and the plainness of my questions and answers is received in the spirit in which I intend, and that is with pastoral affection over you. Brotherly love in Christ and a gentleness that reflects the heart of Christ. I do not mean this in any type of mean-spirited way. I want to be plain and direct, however. 
so that we can be equipped to understand what this text says. My goal is to give clarity for the purpose of freedom, sisters, so that you might have the freedom to run in the way that God has created you. I also hope that as a result of this five weeks, at the very least, I, I'm not going to be able to chase every nuance and argument of this debate. It is way too far-reaching. In many ways, I wish this conversation could happen around just five or six of us where this back-and-forth dialogue and answer and ask questions about even questions and debates that you have heard. But one of the goals that I do hope to accomplish, and that is to de-weaponize the gross misapplication on both sides of the fence. What do we do with this text? I've identified four things I think that you can do with this text. Number one, you can pretend it's not there. You can kind of wince when you get to it. You agree with it, but you don't like it. And so you avoid it. You apply it softly. On the other hand, you might, number two, apply it absolutely. You read it without context and you apply it aggressively. But if you're going to apply it absolutely without any nuance, without any context, then women, you shouldn't even sing in church or speak at any level. That would be an absolute application. Or number three, you can apply it selectively. You can determine which pieces can be discounted or explain certain aspects away and thereby apply it inconsistently. Or, number four, and this is what I'm advocating for, is you can read it redemptively. You can read it redemptively. Encouragements and prohibitions that are meant to reclaim in part what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That the church is to be a seedling of Eden and a foreshadowing of restoration in heaven. By rediscovering and reclaiming created orders and delighting in them, knowing that that is how we have been created for our joy and our delight. And there is a momentary angst in which we wrestle with that because our flesh, and we talked about it last week with women, week before with men, because we bring into it our fallen nature. There is this wrestling and angst. But the more that we walk with God, the more that those curses of the fall become background and we're able to walk in a way that begins to redeem the way that God has originally created us to walk in the fullness of Christ, to begin our restoration in Christ now. There's two main areas that I feel are kind of the overwhelming battlegrounds over this text today. And one is you can pretend it's not there. People just pretend it's not there. And the other big one is that we just try to explain it away. We apply it selectively. So a lot of the questions today that I'm going to pose are addressing these two positions, specifically the misapplication and misinterpretation of the text and selectively choosing one thing over another. But here's the problem. When you start doing that, well, that's not for today. That's not for us. When you start doing that, where do you stop doing that? 
Who's to say that we can't then selectively discount what we find in chapter 1 when we see the nature of the atonement and the crucifixion of Christ? Or, you know what, chapter 3, those recommendations for eldership, those are just guidelines. becomes very problematic in terms of keeping a consistent interpretive style. Now, as we get into the question, let's remember where we're at. 1 Timothy, that Paul is wanting the church to live out the living Christ well. And the context is very specific. He's talking about the gathered church. This is not some universal, ambiguous notion of the Catholic church. And when I mean Catholic, I mean universal church. This is not some sort of ambiguous gathering of the people of God. He's talking about very specific context of the actual gathering of a local church, namely in Ephesus. They're gathered for teaching, for worship. He wants those things to be done in order, under the guidance of overseers, elders. There should be instructions and accountability for leadership and instruction for how to live out Christ practically. And in chapter 2, he wants both men and women to exercise their roles well within the family of God. Paul wants, 1 Timothy 3.15, men and women to know how they should behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, when we come to this text, we sometimes run to the practical question. We read it, and then we ask the question, what can a woman do? What can a woman not do? Can she be a pastor? Important questions. But as I have tried to demonstrate over the last three weeks, if we do not build out a framework of understanding and include Genesis in our understanding, since Paul makes that a grounding of his argument, if we race to the practical question, you actually might get to a destination that the text is not intent. Beware racing to the practical without understanding the text. And teachers, don't just show the practical. Sometimes like, just get down to the practical. Get down to the rubber meets the road. You need to get there eventually. But be careful, brothers and sister teachers, who racing to get to the practical, you don't show people how you got there. We must translate theory into practice, instruction into admonition, and truth into guidance. We need to get practical. And so here's the first practical question. After we have now built a little bit of framework of understanding of this text. If you're joining us for the first time today, you're joining us without that context. Therefore, please go back and listen online uh, maybe later this week. Number one, what can a woman do for the kingdom? What can a woman do for the kingdom? We find that here in the text where Paul, in an imperatival injunction, a command, a directive, let a woman learn, Timothy. Recognizing that in the Jewish culture that women were sidelined in the background and that was common even in the church of the New Testament. Therefore, the injunction is a woman should be a full disciple on equal par with a man. What can a woman do for the kingdom? She can exercise her office as a disciple. A full disciple. A full inheritor of the goodness and the identity that is found in Christ. A full son of God. Whereby she gets the full inheritance of the Father. In trying to figure out everything that a woman can do for the kingdom, I actually stopped because the list is so expensive. And in some ways it's the wrong question. 
It's not what can a woman do as if she is some special category, but the question is what are both men and women supposed to do as disciples of Christ? It's for both men and women to exercise full learnership and discipleship. And the landscape is broad and the vistas for ministry are abundant. And both men and women share the same general office of learner, disciple, ambassador, and bearer of the image of God. You know what's interesting about the people of God? All humanity bears the image of God. But the believer in Christ not only bears the image of God, but also bears the clarified image of Christ. Both God and Christ are the same. But you cannot find Christ in an unbeliever. You can see the fingerprints of God's handiwork and you can see the general characteristics of his sovereignty and power and intricacies and knowledge. But the Christian bears specifically the image of Christ. Why Paul says, I desire that Christ is formed in you. That we are the fragrance of Christ. And that brothers and sisters, both of us are to image Christ. And to constantly be learning and growing into that role. Scripture nowhere prohibits men nor women from vast societal positions whereby men and women can exert their ambassadorial role to represent Christ. The only restrictions have to do with the nuclear family and the family of God. Now there's some wisdom things where maybe some activities and societal positions may jeopardize being a mom or being a dad well and that should be exercised but in terms of prohibitions a woman is not to be a father and a father is supposed to not be a mother and within the family of God as we're going to get into there are some also some family restrictions. So let's talk about the very specific role where women in general and unqualified men or uncalled men are prohibited from serving. And I say that very carefully. When we ask the question, and this is the second question, can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman be a pastor? What I want to demonstrate is that women in general and unqualified men and uncalled men are not qualified to be an overseer, to be an elder. Can a woman be pastor? What will we see right here in the text? If you look at it with me where he says in verse 12, I do not permit. Paul is restricting something. But the question is, what is he restricting? When people say that certain roles are open both to men and women in general, they have to answer the question, well, then what is Paul restricting? What is he restricting? Because he's restricting something. Well, they would say, well, he's restricting men and women using their authority wrongly. When we look at this in the Greek, 
This word does not in any capacity have that connotation. So that's an overreading into the text in order to get to a destination that you've already determined. What else could he be restricting? Is he restricting vocalization of any kind? No, we see in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul actually affirms women who are prophesying. Now, what does that mean? We'll get to that in just a moment. He also does not restrict women or men from singing. Or obviously vocalization of teaching in some regards because Priscilla and Aquila both discipled Apollos. Can a woman be a pastor? It's a huge question. But let's tighten our question if we can. Instead of asking the question, can a woman be a pastor, which is our colloquial way of saying it, let's tighten our question with this specifically. Can a woman be an overseer, an elder, who has been charged with the authoritative teaching and governance of the church? I think that's more of a helpful question. Can a woman be charged with that specific responsibility? Before we answer, what, what is an overseer? In the New Testament, uh, conservative scholarship generally and historically and even beyond conservative scholarship recognize that the word overseer, elder, bishop, and pastor are overlapping offices for the most part. There, there, there is some strong disagreement on the other side, but good textual scholarship will say, no, these really are representing the same position, just the different ways in which they exert their function. When we look at the function and role of an elder, I really appreciate Alexander Strauch in his book, Biblical Eldership, and he delineates several things. That elders lead the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17, Titus 1, 7, 1 Peter uh, 5, 1 and 2. So they lead the church. They teach and preach the word, 1 Timothy 3, 2. And if you want these passages, I can give them to you in person. So they lead the church. They teach and preach the word. They protect the church from false teachers. They exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine. They visit the sick and pray. And they judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders, shepherds, overseers, leaders, they lead and care for the local church. So that's the office of an overseer. That's the office of the elder. So can a woman be a pastor? Well, I would say maybe if Paul did not ground his argument in pre-fall creation headship. And, and I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to listen to voices on the other side which, with whom I disagree, both men and women, some female pastors who go into this text. And here's one thing I consistently find across the argumentation. And that is they do not deal with the Genesis grounding. They do not go into this argument. Or they do, or they relegate it to its, oh, it's a husband and wife argument. But you see, Genesis 3 and 1 and 2 are not just about marital relationships. It is instructions and role and gender across all of humanity. So I find their argument unconvincing. So Paul grounds his argument in pre-fall creation headship order. An argument he makes here, by the way, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So in two different churches, in two different contexts, 
He makes the argument of pre-fall creation headship. It's not a question of competency. And it's not a question of culture. Rather, it is a return to Edenic glory. Reflecting the Garden of Eden that, that, that men and women were created and designed for beautiful roles. And at the call that Paul is making to 1 Timothy is don't, don't repeat the disorder of the fall in how we walk out created roles in your family, but also in the context of the church. Can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman be an overseer? There's also the precedent principle. And that is that there is not one example of a female elder in the New Testament. Women of influence, yes, but not an overseer. We don't have one sermon by a woman. Prayers, yes. Ministry, absolutely. Leadership, definitely. But we have no historical precedent in the New Testament for that office being held by a woman. Now, I am very cognizant, and I was talking to my wife yesterday, I said, one of the hard things that preaching this passage is preaching a prohibition knowing that my sisters already come to the gifts with so much struggle. This is not meaning to layer upon, but rather to bring clarity and hopefully delight in understanding in how God has created so that you might know where you will best flourish as his created child. In another way, I would say my sister's overseership is a burden that you have been freed from bearing. That overseership is a burden that you have been freed from bearing. In our culture of celebrityism and platformism, we associate platform or publicity only with power and heights of success. And so within our own hearts, there might even be a desire to want that public sphere, either for influence or for power or for recognition. We have to always inspect our hearts. I have to constantly inspect my heart on those realities. But I also want to say this, that overwhelmingly, if you look at a New Testament role of the pastor and the overseer, though there is a delight in being obedient to the word of God, this position is much more burden than it is joy. Now, this is not a pity me statement. Please understand that. I thank God and I can't see myself doing anything else because in the words of Jeremiah, he's put a fire in my bones. But I can't tell you how many times I've gotten up, including this morning, and I have stomach issues getting into the pulpit. Because you're like way too much information. I'm just, ugh, a little stressed over, these are hard issues. I'm not just getting up here giving a lecture or an opinion. Matter of fact, I stand under the weight of James 3 that says not many of you should seek to be teachers because don't you know you will be judged by a stricter standard before God. I 
When we look at the question, can a woman be an overseer? From the Genesis account, from we look at the role, from what we see in this text, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Number three question. Wasn't Paul's prohibition just for the Ephesian church though? And I've heard this often. Matter of fact, one of the uh, female pastors that I listened to who has a PhD in different uh, studies, uh, she used this argument. She did not go to Genesis and she did not explain her cultural rationale, but here is how historically this argument has been placed. We know that Artemis, Diana, being the chief deity of Ephesus and being a female and the female cult worship and strong Greek women within Greek and Roman society, that there was an inherent feminism in regards to this specific culture. And Paul was telling Timothy to restrain those excesses specific to that church, but it was not a universal application. Okay. Interesting hypothesis. Let, 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 let's explore it a little bit. Let's begin specifically in the text itself, beginning in verse 8. It says there, I desire then that in every place. You see that in verse 8? Now you say, wait, hold on. It says in every place, the men, not the women. I desire then that in every place. Look at verse 9. Likewise also. The same instruction I just gave to the men in every place, is true of women in every place. Additionally, because he goes to Genesis, which is a universal application across all humanity, you cannot relegate this to a cultural issue. I would like to point out that the culture argument is very easy to throw out, but very difficult to prove. Scholars recognize that in trying to determine the culture of the day, you have to examine its writings, its institutions, to prove out whether or not a hypothesis is true. A feministic understanding of the Ephesian church or the time period of Ephesus is not only not documented, it's unprovable. And to the contrary, here's an example. Archaeologists uncovered this a funeral of a famous woman there in the culture, whereby the council, and this is a quote from the Greek inscription, the council and the citizenry hereby crowns Lavia Paula, daughter of Lucius, who led a modest and decorous life. It's very interesting that the word modest used in that external biblical Greek text is the same cognate that Paul uses here for propriety and modesty in 1 Timothy 2. Which, let me connect the dots for you if, you're, if, I'm, not, if I'm losing you. That even in this very public funeral, it was not feministic traits that were extolled, but rather modesty. That even in Paul's day, it would have been understood that this is a virtuous principle of the woman. Therefore, the cultural argument, both archaeologically and textually, just does not make sense. Number four, but can't you call a woman a pastor and she not be an elder? This is very, very, very popular today. We have Pastor Jane, Pastor Mary, and Pastor, but they're not 
elders because they're under the headship. And the argument goes like Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And that word shepherd is often translated in English as pastor. If that is the primary argument for which we look at this, now I want to say this is kind of an intra-complementarian debate uh, with regards to we recognize headship, but we're going to, and many even Baptistic non-denominational churches as well are having the female pastor title, um, but, but there's two linguistic errors that are committed here. Pastor is an English word. The word in the Greek is shepherding. So if you want to be true to the actual text and what it means, you would call them Shepherd Jane, Shepherd Mary. It also commits a, a dual, if you will, a dual impact on misunderstanding linguistics, and that is taking the translation as the original and then applying the translation unwarranted without recognizing everything that that translation carries. Let me explain. So pastor in our culture almost ubiquitously is understood to bear authority. So is it wrong to call a woman a pastor, but she not be an elder? Wrong, maybe, but definitely sloppy with the text and confusing. And we're actually not reinforcing headship, we're, we're confusing it. Number five. Can an elder empower a woman to preach? This one is, again, very common today. Can a woman empower a woman to preach? So example would be, okay, God has appointed me as overseer and I'm gonna use my overseership and my headship to bring a woman to fill the pulpit. I'm gonna step down, but she is under my authority and under my headship. Can a pastor do that? Well, let me identify that the problem is this, is that Paul says, let a woman learn and quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to ex exercise authority over a man. We understand this to refer specifically to the office of overseership, of the elder. It's not that she can't ever teach a man in any context. But if you're placing her in the role to all the, do all the tasks of that role, then what's the difference between her actually having the role? See, the problem is he is placing her in the place where the teaching with authority is done. And it is that which Paul is prohibiting. So can a woman preach, the senior pastor's wife, another female leader in the church, because he has been invested with the power to make that call, I would argue he has overstepped his power. The Bible does not give the elder the power and the authority to override that which Scripture has specifically prohibited. Now, I do think that some just do it out of ignorance of actually the text. And it's like, well, you know, it's under my headship. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, let her teach. Okay, is it a right or wrong thing? I would put it in very confusing and perhaps at times definitely wrong. How do you like that? Perhaps at times definitely wrong. <laughs> One of the things I want to be very honest with you is that some of the contexts of these really do matter. Like, for instance... 
if a church doesn't view the pulpit, not, not this magical piece of, this isn't magical, not that this is magical or has some inherent spiritual quality, but if the church does not have a defined place where there is authoritative exposition and instruction, well, I guess it doesn't really matter. And then that, that just points to a bigger problem within the church. We recognize that there is inherent authority vested in certain positions and in certain activities. And specifically the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning in this specific context. And that is what Paul is talking about, a very specific context. So can an elder empower a woman to preach? The answer is no. Can an, al can an elder, however, empower women to teach where the forum and setting is not for the authoritative teaching? Yes. Teaching are places of general Christian influence, but not the place of the teaching that governs or carries authority over the whole body. There should be empowerment and delegation. Number six, can a woman teach with men present? Can a woman teach with men present? She cannot exercise authority over a man. Our goal is consistency. If we're talking about a specific role and the authoritative exposition associated with the overseer who is charged with the governance and instruction and the setting in which that takes place, then we're talking about that role and doing that in that context over a man. But in other contexts, even Bible teaching, can a woman teach with men present? And I would say yes. That's being consistent with our interpretive framework. As long as she is not exerting teaching in such a manner or context that exerts church authority. An overseer has the responsibility to judge, correct, rebuke, and speak for and represent that local church community. And a woman cannot and should not assume that mantle of headship. When we talk about gathering here, I am very, very careful in what I say. And the time I spend into this instruction, it's not just a lecture, it's not just my opinion. I want to say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the word of God. The people who fill this pulpit are very carefully chosen. We recognize this as a part of the authoritative exposition and governance of the church. It carries a weight here that is reflected nowhere else in the same way across this local church. That is not garnering authority and power for myself. No, you should hold me accountable to God's word. But rather, it is recognizing inherent structures and authorities that God has put in place. And so we guard that carefully. Now, you may say, can a woman teach with men present? You just said yes, and your response is, wow, this can get messy real quick in application. The answer is yes. Therefore, godly leadership should look to empower godly women. It's not man empowering any man. Brothers, with all love and respect to you, some of you are not qualified to speak up here. You're qualified for salvation and bearing the name of Christ in salvation. 
But some of you are not qualified to speak up here. It's not because I'm inherently better. I would challenge you to strive to be qualified. Some of you sisters are not qualified to teach in forums outside of this place. But some of you are. And so godly leadership should look to empower godly men and women. So we're back to that men and women. It's not just a women special category of, hey, women, you get to do this while we do this. No, all men and women are to be disciples and teachers in the general category of, of the kingdom and the church. And within the church, there is a specific category of overseership that is restricted to qualified godly men to preserve images of headship and what God ordained at creation. So, number seven, where specifically is a woman then to be quiet? Because he says, let, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Okay, we understand that to be a disposition. But then also it says, authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, being consistent with our interpretation. If we understand that teach and exercise authority has to do with overseership, eldership, which by the way, makes sense with the book. There's no chapter divisions in the Greek. We go from one to two to chapter three in our English Bible. He goes right out of this and says, okay, so let's talk about elders and overseers. Chapter three, verse one. But where is it specifically a woman to be quiet? Within the context of she shouldn't get up here and speak out of her role and exert and usurp the role of the overseer. Now, some of you, my, my sisters, you asked the question of, well, what about 1 Corinthians 14? Where there it explicitly says, women, be silent, and if you have a question, go home and ask your husband. How do we understand that verse? Actually, very easily. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, what is he doing? He's giving instruction on prophecies specifically in their authoritative interpretation and in regards to their authoritative interpretation at the gathered assembly of the church. Sisters, that's not your role to exert authority in that space. Very consistent with 1 Timothy chapter 2 where with regards to the authoritative instruction Sisters, this is not your role before God. So note the setting both in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy that the church is gathered for regular worship and exposition and in the context of that authoritative exposition delivered by a qualified overseer, there is to be respect and submission to the word of God. Number eight, what does this look like at Heritage? Well, we're eight minutes over, so we don't have time to get into that. Just kidding. We are actually are six minutes over. But what does this look like at Heritage? Um, we have tried to model this and are still trying to have this conversation and model it. The preaching is done by a qualified overseer and elder. The prayer into the message, the elder prayer, is done by a qualified man who can or is an elder. But the leading of worship, singing, reading of scripture, prayer, 
those things that are not directly connected into the authoritative teaching, both men and women of good standing participate. Now, there's still elder oversight, but both men and women participate. And we see that in the New Testament. That, 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 that both men and women can give testimonies and sharing of God's faithfulness. But the oversight of baptism and communion, again, done by the overseer and elder, has to do with governance. The distribution and facilitation of those said elements could be both men and women. Greeting, hospitality, management of logistics to accomplish gathered church and even leadership within the context of the church in specific ways can be both men and women. What about our discipleship communities, children's ministry, student ministry? Okay, those are not as strict as the main gathering, this space right here, because as important as these ministries are, they do not make up the governing teaching authority of our church. Hopefully they reflect it well, but that's not the place where that's accomplished. Now, because of the size of heritage and just trying to make sure that we're consistent in what we do, it's best to have regular type elder headship visible in different places. But again, there is flexibility and freedom in DCs, children, and student ministry for high levels of both men and women to participate in ministry and even in leadership. Wait a minute, there's a lot of undefined space here. A lot of questions that you're asking. So number nine, how do churches determine where the teaching bears governing authority? How do we even know that? Well, you have to ask questions, don't you? Is this instruction declaring a community position? Is a position laying judgment, correction, or rebuke? Is the scale of the context such that it's a de facto authoritative gathering. How do we make these decisions? We have to prayerfully ask them and say where and when and how. How do we encourage our sisters to be, to be disciples and men to be disciples? How do we have this conversation? How do we empower them but also be okay with some level of messiness and discussion? Sometimes in the church, we just shut down the messy discussion because it's messy. Brothers and sisters, there are some things that we just need to have messy conversations over, like alcohol. Oh, man, there's a grenade let's just throw out there. Right? We have to have messy discussions over them. The Bible does not absolutely prohibit it. It does prohibit drunkenness. How do we engage in this internal space in between? A lot of wisdom, prayer, and conversation. It's messy. So where do we go next as a church, Heritage Baptist Church? Number one, let's just keep talking and having this conversation. Brothers, that you would learn and listen for your sisters. Sisters, be patient and gracious with your brothers. And that the attitude that is supposed to govern all of us is that of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If we can bind ourselves here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May we humble ourselves, look to Christ, model our lives after him, but also bind ourselves closely to God's word. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we continue this conversation, not only this week, but also next week and the week after and the months after. May we do so with graciousness and clarity. I pray for my sisters and my brothers. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and may our church be filled and overflowing with the mind of Christ. All glory be to Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.